Beyond the Beltway. This is Bruce Dumont with our weekly analysis of national politics with occasional injections of room and innuendo all offered up by a panel of political insiders, pundits, power brokers, public servants, and most importantly, plain-speaking Americans from coast to coast. Tonight featuring commentary by conservative Marty Garrity, liberal Salim Muwakil, gay rights leader Rick Garcia, Reform Party veteran Dawn Larson and conservative Republican Kenton McCarthy. Our program tonight coming to you from our home base at WCGO in suburban Evanston, Illinois. Nice to have you with us. This is the 40th anniversary of this program. We'll talk a little bit about it later on. We're not going to spend a lot of time talking about it this evening because there is so much to talk about it, but we will celebrate tonight, and we begin with two longtime guests on this program uh, representing uh, the left. We have Salim Muwakil, who's a talk show host for WVON Radio in Chicago and also a senior editor of In These Times, has been a guest on this show probably for much of the last 25 years. And Marty Garrity is our conservative card-carrying uh, a, a pro-life uh, uh, Republican uh, this evening, and uh, he joins us as well. Thank you very much for being with us. And uh, gentlemen, I'd like to begin with you. Uh, I want to start with you, Salim. Uh, today, uh, uh, Hawk Newcomb, who was the leader of the Black uh, uh, Lives Matter movement out of New York, uh, he was on with with Chris Wallace today, and he was saying that uh, that black people don't support or, or don't trust Republicans or Democrats. Now, obviously, that falls in the face of what a lot of Democrats have been saying for you know forty or fifty years. But do you agree with that assessment by uh, Mr. Newcomb? Um, I, I, in a certain in a certain sense, I do. I mean, there there are there's an activist element of the black community that is very um, ambivalent about both parties. Mm-hmm. Um, not, and, 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 and is especially contemptuous of those who tout the Democrats as the savior of black America. So there's, there's, that sentiment is definitely at large. But I think for the most part, the masses of black people tend to fall into the Democratic camp. Mm-hmm. They tend to be supportive of the Democratic Party. Marty Gerdy, I want to ask you, because we have discussed race. In fact, the two of you have been on this program talking about race for, for at least 25 years. So we've spent a lot of time talking about it uh, on this program. Do you agree that now is a unique time, more unique than ever before, and that we are likely to have some significant change in maybe racial attitudes in this country? Well, I think that the, the, a key to that will be the election in November. It'll be a, 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 a really crucial election, and, and uh, much of what uh, comes after that will, be, will, will determine where our, our uh, society is going uh, in terms of uh, uh, racial relations. When this discuss- I want to go back to, uh, as you say, uh, uh, a, a more radical or activist element within the black community, Salim. Um, is there such a thing as the black silent majority? Maybe people who are, you know, they're not radicals. They may be victims in their house. They may be fearful of going out because their relatives are, or they might be, uh, you know, shot or their relatives might be shot. Uh, and, and I'm wondering whether... Uh, they represent a significant a number that could come up, uh, show up on election day, and maybe surprise people. Well, you know, 
that that's an interest, interesting question. I think there's there, there's considerable um, room for for the growth of that kind of constituency. Um, but what happens, and and I, and I think Republicans have blown many many opportunities to enlist folks who 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 have those kinds of inclinations in, into their into their ranks because of the racism that re, the Republican Party. Uh, seems to be fond of that. That has what it is that um, element of, of the Republican Party that that keeps many African American conservatives from becoming actively involved with the Republican Party. Although many of their many of their political and and cultural inclinations are toward um, the, the Republican Party, especially the you know the, the pro life um, element and and, and Does, other other. Salim, does does, does Tim does does Tim does Tim Scott of South Carolina, who's emerging as at least the Republican spokesman on issues of police brutality and 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 the racial issues that we're talking about here, does he represent a unique opportunity for the Republicans maybe to get the attention of some African Americans? You asking me? Yeah. Yes. Yes. I, I think right. You know, like Edward Brooke. Um, in, in, in the past, he was a Republican of, of great standing. He was also widely respected in the African-American community. Um, but it, 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 the Republicans always shoot themselves in the foot when it comes to racial policies and racial racial sensibilities. They seem to be wedded to to this kind of, um, you know, this, this neo-Confederacy. Uh, Marty, think, your, your reaction to that? I think it's, it's much easier to... Uh, to generalize and say Republicans are racist than it is to itemize those particular issues that uh, Republicans uh, prove their racism. For instance, I, my guess is that if there's a black silent majority, it includes a lot of, of parents who wish they could choose which school they're going to send their kids to, but they can't choose that because the, the teachers unions, the Democratic teachers unions, and the Democratic administrations in city after city, really every big, every big city in the country, keeps them from uh, having a choice of where they're going to send their children to school. That's a very good that's, point, Marty, but I want to ask a follow-up. I, I agree with you, at the end, and I want to talk and get Salim's reaction on that. But would you also acknowledge that notwithstanding all of the efforts that the president has, has the lip service he has given uh, to criminal justice reform and reaching out to the African-American community, uh, which are viewed by some as a very positive thing, when, when he retweets uh, a white power comment by one of his supporters in Florida, and then it obviously was taken down by the, by the president today. But when things like that happen, don't you think it makes a lot of African-Americans and even uh, a lot of moderate uh, Republicans to scratch their head and say, what is this guy thinking about? Well, I, actually, I did not see the, what, what you're talking about, what was retweet, retweeted there. Did, but, you, did you see uh, the video? It, uh, which No, I'm sorry. Okay, well, okay, video? Well, the, vid, the, the video is of a supporter for Trump. Uh, talking about white power, the president retweeted that video, and then later on he realized that how foolish it was, or someone did, and they took it down. But again, it it was a story for you know you know maybe ten twelve hours, and uh, I'm just wondering if uh, if 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 confusion like that leads to mixed signals, 
and uh, all efforts that the president may be making to to make himself appealing to African Americans is is lost when he makes a dumb movement like that. Well, I I don't know to the the extent to which a a retweet constitutes an affirmative statement by somebody, but what you well. you can say is that uh, whoever controls his tweets doesn't doesn't always. Think twice before he they control, do something. He but, controls but, his tweets. That's that's part of the issue. Well, we've got to pause. I'm not so sure that that's we've, the case. We've got to pause. I want to come back. I want to get uh, uh, your response uh, to that, Salim. And also, I want to broaden it out, as, as Marty suggested, on the issue of a uh, of free choice of, of public education in America. 1-800-723-8029. From coast to coast and border to border and around the world at beyondthebeltway.com. Now starting our fort or celebrating our 40th year. Back shortly. Hi, this is Chicago Alderman Raymond Lopez just congratulating my friend Bruce Dumont on 40 years of Beyond the Beltway. Truly an American institution. Congratulations, my friend. I'm Marty Garrity. Congratulations to Bruce Dumont on 40 years of hosting one of the most interesting political shows on the radio. I've been privileged to be part of that for 35 of those 40 years, and I look forward to being involved for the next 35 years. Hi, my name is David Masiotra. I started watching Beyond the Beltway as a high school student, and now I'm a proud panelist. Congratulations, Bruce, on 40 years of broadcast success and intelligent political debate. Here's to many more. Bruce Dumont back, and I want to ask uh, Salim Mulekil to kind of Offer your assessment of some of the pieces of legislation that are making their way through Congress, and I'm wondering uh, if you were to look at at all the things that uh, are, are meant to reduce police brutality and and make it more responsive to the African American community and make them uh, feel more comfortable about calling the police. Are there a couple of issues that that stand out in your mind that 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 really might have some change, uh, result in some change of attitude? Uh, well, I, I think that the police have too much on their plate. Um, mm-hmm. I think that we need a serious effort to to um, reimagine what U.S. policing should be about. I, I, there's, there's there's too much of a, a paramilitary response to 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 incidents that don't require. Um, paramilitary activity and 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 it's and it's really not the police the police's fault uh in 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 a, in a, in a serious way because they they're kind of constrained in 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 the role that they've been assigned uh, and and the, these are flashpoints in society that have to be readjusted and i think that that all of this all of this um uh contention over police behavior is a good thing because it gives us an opportunity to be to Reimagine really what the police should be. All Marty, about. would you agree we're, with, we're with that? The, 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 yeah, the, the, the concept of reimagining. You know, one of the things that uh, uh, that Hawk Newcomb uh, talked about today was that you know many of the calls that uh, that go into a police department really they're 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 about social matters. They could be domestic exactly. matters. Uh, there could be mental health related issues, and then maybe by reimagining as to uh, who goes out to a home to uh, begin to investigate a crime, that uh, maybe it doesn't require a police. officer. Officer. Is there some part exactly of that, right. that, that uh, is there I, some is I, there some part of that you agree with that, Marty? Oh, I agree with that. That uh, 
almost completely. The okay. problem is, the problem is that basically the call that goes out to the police department goes to a nine one one operator. Yeah, and she says she hears somebody say, "My husband is having a nervous breakdown." The and and uh, or he's uh, going crazy or he's acting yeah. funny or whatever, and then she, the, that nine one one operator has to say, "Well, let's see, whom do I send? A social worker, a psychiatric uh, uh, expert, uh, a guy with a gun who could stop this okay. guy if he's going to go crazy." Right. Stop for how a does, second. Stop, stop. Stop for a second. Uh, that's a very practical uh, possibility. Salim, just pick up on the on the the practical nature of what Marty has just uh, you know talked about. Yeah, I, I think Marty is absolutely right on, on this. Um, we there, there's um, there's he, a, a police officer has no expertise. He has no particular expertise to de-escalate any kind of mental health crisis, um, and and it, it is actually exacerbating the issue by sending in someone who is trained uh, with paramilitary influences to to take charge in in an aggressive way. Would you I mean, acknowledge that? Would you would you acknowledge, Salim? However, that in some cases, and again, when a when a call is coming into nine one one, the dispatcher may not know. In many cases, it is the show of force, not not brutality, but it is the show of force that can, let's say, restrain uh, a husband or wife who has been beating up uh, their spouse. That that takes a little muscle. Would you acknowledge that? It's not all about sitting down and, and reasoning, you know, where there's sociological problems. And that is absolutely true. That's why a, a police officer's job is extremely complicated and, and, right. and I think requires a higher level of preparation, training, uh, and, 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 a, and a temperament that is more suitable to those kinds of, uh, you know, those, those kinds of complicated problems. Turning it around, if, if I'm a psychiatric social worker and I get a call from 911 saying, there's a problem over at 111 Main Street. Can you please go over and resolve it? Uh, there's a guy screaming and ranting and raving and whatever. Uh, am I going to go over there and say, oh, I, yeah, I'm going to go in without any protection. I'm just going to go in and try to talk this guy down. I don't think that's going to work. I think that you need the the anybody who goes into that situation needs to be confident that he has the uh, the, the the wherewithal to uh, control the situation if it gets out of hand. Do you, Marty, believe that it should be easier for the public to get rid of a bad police officer? Oh, Bruce, absolutely. You know, you watch that that, that eight minutes and 46 seconds of this guy just impassively kneeling there and saying, you, you know, you watch it, and, and after a while you start saying, Get off, get off. It's like watching a movie that you've seen 10 times and you know that the guy, that the kids should not go into the, uh, go into the basement, but they do. And you, you're there saying, go, don't do it, don't do it. And that's exactly what happens here. This guy, it's, it's heartless. It, it's so hard to watch this poor fellow but how do literally you, how dying do before you, our eyes. How do you get someone? Because, because you know, it's always said that th- there's one bad apple. I, I, I don't, I, we hear this and see this too often. I don't think there's one bad apple. I'm not even so sure it's one bushel. It may be an orchard, but there are cops out there who overreact. Now, I realize their job is tough. 
But again, I think that it seems to me that, especially in that particular case, he had 18 beefs against him. If you have an officer with that type of record, and again, I think they have to be, you know, adjudicated in some way within within their disciplinary system. But no one should walk around with eight with 18 beefs against him. And if they lose a job in Minneapolis, they shouldn't be able to go, uh, you know, to uh, Bloomfield, New Jersey, and and get another job. So the idea Absol- of this this national. Uh, you know, database, I think, is a, is a good idea. I think it's a terrific idea. But understand here, Bruce, that in almost every urban uh, police department, the, the, the political control of that police department is, um, is held by Democrats. There are no Republican big cities where, where the police department is su- subject to Republicans. These are all Democratic politicians who have the control, who've given up that control in, well, in terms of union contracts to the union to the police unions, and that's Salim, a bad situation. Salim, but it's not what, a Republican situation. Salim, uh, I, I'm not it, I'm not suggesting it's a Republican or Democrat, but Salim, I want to go to you and find out is is are the police unions uh, are they too strong, and do we have political leaders that uh, should uh, challenge them more? We both exactly what you said. They are too strong, and we need political leaders to to offer greater challenge. Uh, they've they've developed their own their own fiefdom uh, all across the country, and 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 it's and it's a, a certain mentality that they that they manifest um, that is generally military oriented, generally um, uh, you know the the, the blue the, it's the blue shield above all, and um, it, it is it is contemptuous really of a lot of community aspirations, a, a, a desire for the, uh, for, for the police to be more community focused, to have, have a much more, um, uh, uh, and to, 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 to nurture behavior that is much more, um, community friendly rather than antagonistic. Like, you know, I grew up and, and I've, I've said this in the past, yes. I, I grew up really thinking that the police were occupying army. All of my initial contacts with the police department were were negative and even racist, quite frankly. And this was growing up in New York. So I had a very jaundiced uh, view of, of the police. And, and um, it's, it's taken a while for me to adjust that view and understand the complexities of the job and why many police are put in, 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 in situations that are very difficult to reconcile. But, um, but still, I mean, it's, it's a job that has to be done and so we have to have people who are who are suitable. Now, Let's in your, in your particular in your particular case, Salim, and again, you have told this story. Uh, you were uh, was he around 14, 15 years old. Was when you were first picked up by police or engaged with police. Well, I was nine. I was nine years nine old, years and I was old. slapped. Okay, I was slapped by by an officer. What did, who what called, what who, what who did what what had you done? Nothing would warrant being slapped by a police officer. But well, in your I, case, I was, what I happened? was trying to protect my my cousin. Okay. My cousin, I, my, my cousin was, was being, um, he, he was, my, my cousin was, was a no, notorious workaholic. And so uh, he was coming back from, from his job and, and the, a police officer confronted him in a very aggressive and, and really unfair way. And I was trying to protect him and the police officer, and the police officer just simply slapped me and knocked me down. Let me ask you this question. When, when, or have you had a positive interaction with police in your lifetime? 
Oh, several times. Okay. Uh, I, 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 um, I had a good friend of my family who was a, who was a police officer. The, the, the most influential record collection I ever owned was, was gifted to me by mm-hmm. a police officer. Okay. So I've had, I've had some very, very positive. Would um, you say, and again, uh, we should mention for those listening around the country, you, you host a, a, a Saturday night talk show on WVON, which is uh, one of the premier uh, talk radio stations for African-Americans uh, uh, in the country. It's located here in Chicago. So your listeners, uh, they come from across the, the, the African-American spectrum. Would, would you say that there is a significant number of African-American listeners just to your show that have had a pleasant or a positive response or interaction with the police department, uh, or is it all as negative as the media has projected it to be? Um, that, that's that's a difficult question to answer, Bruce, because you know many m- most times when people are calling the radio station, they're irritated, and it's right. generally because of some some situation right. that caused them that caused them some sort of consternation. Um, so I, I wouldn't hear of the positive. Okay. Okay. That's a, that's a very good point. We do have to pause right now. Uh, Salim Muwakil and Marty Garrity are our guests. We will hear from them and move on with our discussion. We're going to get back to a discussion of the uh, choice in education as perhaps a core reason why we have some problems that exist in certain sectors of our society. from coast to coast and border to border. I'm Bruce Dumont, celebrating our 40th anniversary on the air. Hi, this is Dave Cohn, and I'd like to congratulate Bruce Dumont and Beyond the Beltway for four decades of outstanding programming. I've been so honored to be a panelist on your show, Bruce, and we look forward to many, many more years of outstanding conversations with you about the views and opinions that exist outside the Beltway. Congratulations. Hi, this is Doug Herman from Los Angeles. Hey, Bruce, congratulations on 40 years. It's a big milestone and something that couldn't have happened if you weren't providing a lively show with balance and bringing people something beyond the Beltway. 40 years. Congratulations. Jeannie Ives here. Congratulations to Bruce Dumont and Beyond the Beltway for 40 years of providing excellent news coast to coast for your listeners. I've really enjoyed working with you, Bruce. You're terrific. Bruce Dumont back on Beyond the Beltway. This is our 40th anniversary program, which means it is our 2000th, 80. 2080 shows, and uh, we have two great guests this evening. We have Saloon Mumakil, we have Marty Garrity, and I want to take a moment and let each of them introduce themselves, tell us a little bit about uh, uh, how they got here and uh, what they do when they're not on the radio. And uh, Saloon, we'll begin with you. Uh, uh, greetings, all. My, my name is Saloon Mumakil. I'm a, a, a writer and a radio host. I've been writing for uh, 40 years now, uh, journalism. I started out uh, with the Associated Press and um, went on to do various um, stints with alternative publications. I I, I began with uh, In These Times magazine about 30 years ago, and I've been with them since then. I've also been a columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times and the Chicago Tribune. Uh, I, I don't know if there are many 
who can boast of <laughs> being a, a columnist for both publications, but I, but I, I was one of those. And, and I've also been associated with Bruce Dumont's show for at least 27 years. Yeah. I remember I got, um, I, I used to be teamed up with Tom Roser, a no, notorious yeah. conservative, late, the late great Tom Roser. Right. And we used to have some epic conflagrations on the show. And it was, in fact, one of those conflagrations that got me a, a columnist job with the Sun-Times. Right. So uh, I go back long, a long way with Bruce Dumont and, and really, really appreciate his contribution. Well, we, we appreciate yours. Again, uh, uh, from the very beginning, we wanted to be able to present both sides every week that we're on. We originally st- started the show on a Thursday night. Uh, we switched over to Sunday many, many years ago. And again, it's always been my desire to have all sides of the political spectrum represented, and certainly uh, you've been an integral part in carrying the uh, carrying the flag of progressivism or liberalism or whatever you want to call it. Uh, but again, we appreciate that. Marty Garrity, tell us a little about yourself, because uh, you and I go back a few years as well. Well, just a few years, Bruce. I am, uh, I am what you might call an anchor baby. Both of my parents were born in Ireland and came to the U.S., became citizens in the U.S. back in the, in the 20s. Uh, I uh, uh, was a uh, an alderman in Evanston for a few years. I spent uh, five or six years as a uh, staff member for the state, the Illinois State Legislature. But I basically uh, my my career has been in commercial real estate. I have uh, six kids, six surviving kids. Two of my sons died, uh, and I have eleven grandchildren. And I'm. Uh, uh, Delighted to see them, and I haven't seen them in a long time because this this uh, shutdown has uh, really uh, cramped my style in yeah. terms of visiting with my family. Yeah, I want to spend uh, just a, a little uh, time on that before we get back to our other discussion, and that is on on the COVID nineteen again. The news of the last uh, seventy two hours is is not good uh, with the with the spike in Arizona and in Texas and California, uh, and they're already backing up on some of the. Uh, uh, the the openings that they had in those states, uh, Marty. What what is your reaction? Because uh, uh, are are you worried that the president really is not demonstrating the type of efficiency in government that you had hoped that he would have brought to this subject? No, Bruce. I I really disagree with that notion. I think okay. that that the responsibility for me and my family and for you and your family lies with each of us. Uh, I don't like the idea of a of a government-induced shutdown. I, I, I don't think the government uh, has the ability to stop a, uh, a, a virus uh, spread. It may have the ability to delay it by keeping people in, but ultimately, this virus is a savage thing, and it's waiting for us to come back out, and we're going to have to come out and, and, and do something about it, either with a vaccine or... Or with some form of herd immunity, I, I'm, I am, I am, I'm, I, I always wear my mask whenever I go in. Anywhere. Yes, you do. Uh, and and uh, even outside, sometimes I do. Uh, but that's my choice, you know. And I don't, I don't like the idea of government telling me what I have to do. Uh, Salim, uh, to you, what what's your reaction to what appears to be a uh, uh, maybe some uh, lessening of, of at least the focus of some people? Uh, and these numbers are going in the wrong direction again. Bruce, I really, you know, I, I have no idea uh, of what this, this virus can do. I, I rely solely on the expert opinion that I, that I read and I try to give myself access to. 
And from and from what I've been able to gather, um, there is there you know we just have to be more conscientious about social distancing and um, wearing a mask. Evidence is is um, is mounting up that wearing a mask has a definite benefit for 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 withstanding the ravages of this virus. African Americans uh, are particularly susceptible uh, to the virus, which seems to be such a cruel, a cruel irony, because we are both uh, extraordinarily susceptible to the virus and particularly vulnerable to the economic consequences of, of the virus. And so it, it again, um, it, it highlights how the accrued disadvantages of slavery's legacy keeps African-Americans in, in, a, in an inferior kind of situation. Elaborate what you mean by that, Salim. Um, well, you know, the injuries of, of racial inequality throughout the history of, of our, throughout our history in this country has accrued. Um, and and, and there, there are disadvantages. Many of us are living in community and in, in neighborhoods in which we are on the, we're living on the edge of survival. Um, data is revealing that the, the, the racial wealth gap is widening to extraordinary proportions. And there's really, there seems to be no prospect of narrowing that gap without some sort of extraordinary efforts at com compensatory uh, resources, um, reparations or, or something uh, similar to that, because African-Americans are relentlessly falling behind and it's, and it's easily traced legacy. The, it's easily the, traced to the momentum uh, of, of the structural, um, the, the structural forces of, of uh, slavery's legacy. To look to look at the core of how we might resolve this, uh, there are some people who are listening tonight that would say the answer. I think a lot of people would say, whether they are black or white, they would say it's education. If you don't have if you don't have education. You're not going to have likely a good job. You're not going to have the wherewithal to buy a house, send your kids to a good school, send your kids to college, and continue the, the life cycle. And there are others that would say, no, the problems are systemic in the black community, uh, which has been uh, assisted by federal government programs, that uh, fathers leave the African-American uh, you know, family quicker than they do in the white community. It happens in the white community too, but the, the combination of these two things, there's a cultural issue that the blacks are responsible for themselves. And then there is the issue of education, which the, which the broader community must give African-Americans greater opportunities so they can take advantage of them. I'd like you to address each of those. And then I want to hear from Marty. Well, the data reveals that education is not really the savior that it is often reputed to be because um, those who, who have college graduates um, earn less than or many blacks with college graduates earn less than whites uh, in, in, in an ag aggregated way. They earn less than whites without without high school graduates that that, that has been um a startling kind of uh, I've never heard revelation. that. I've never heard that. But go ahead. I, I, I've never oh, heard oh. that. And in fact, I I think it's been it's been established that black women with college degrees do better than white women with college degrees in terms of earning power. That that's a, a black, statistic. There, there is there is absolutely evidence that black women uh, have been uh, have been gaining have been gaining status. In recent years, there certainly is evidence of that. But in general, the black community 
has uh, has deteriorated in terms of its um, it, it, it's its accumulation of wealth in comparison. What about to, the, to the what about well, the cultural aspect uh, of of the, 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 the breakup of the is, family is another is another part of the accrued disadvantages of, of slavery. I mean, look, look at the look at the fact that uh, black people have been really prevented from accumulating any kind of generational wealth. Uh, redlining has prevented any kind of uh, um, real estate. Um, uh, what about to, what about taking responsibility for children that you bring into the world? Is is that not does 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 any of that, this that, does uh, any that, of this again, go back? Again, does any of this again, go that, back to be to individual responsibility? That correlates. That correlates this with with job with job participation. Uh, William Julius Wilson wrote a very influential book called When Work Disappears. And when he talks about how things change, and especially in South Side Chicago, when the factories disappeared, when, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, deindustrialization happened and, and, and globalization took away many of the industrial jobs that used to vitalize the inner cities. Once that happened, right. Black let's men let, lost their opportunity right. for employment. I'm going to switch it over to Marty. Let's let Marty respond for a while. Marty, go go ahead. Respond the, thus far. The greatest, the greatest social mistake that the United States ever made was the passage of the, uh, of the great society. In the great society, we said to women, black and white, if you do three things, we'll give you money. If you don't work, if you have a child, and if you drive the father of that child out of the house. Now, when, in, the early, in the early 60s, black uh, 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 illegitimacy, uh, the, the, well, 16% of black children were, were born to, in families without a father. That number has become 70% since the Great Society started paying people to do things that were against their, their best interest. If you give people money, if you spend money on something, you'll have more of it. If you tax something, you'll have less of it. When we, come back, when we come back, Salim, when we come back, you'll have an opportunity to pick up right at that point. I'm Bruce Dumont. Thanks for joining us tonight on Beyond the Beltway. Hey, Bruce, it is Josh Cantro greeting you from Central Oregon, where I'm on a hiking trip. I just wanted to thank you for all you do to present balanced viewpoints every week over the past 40 years. I'm a big fan of your show, and I've been fortunate to be a regular guest the past three years, for which I thank you as well. To another 40 years, Bruce, thank you. Hello, Bruce. Kenny Romeyer with News Radio KLBJ in Austin, Texas. Congratulations on 40 years with Beyond the Beltway, another milestone in your distinguished broadcasting career. And thanks for the quality civil discourse on Sunday nights. From all of us here at KLBJ, we wish you continued success. This is Mike Lotus. I want to congratulate Bruce Dumont on 40 years of Beyond the Beltway and wish him many more years of his wonderful show discussing the great political issues of the day. Bruce Dumont back on Beyond the Beltway. Thanks very much for joining us. Silly Mulekil, uh, you were about to uh, respond to Marty Garrity's uh, comments before the break. Go ahead. Yes. Um, yeah, you know, M Marty has a point that no, no doubt when there is incentive for people to, to do certain, when there's an economic incentive 
uh, that uh, that often drives behavior. But I, one of the reasons that um, men were were that the policies required men not to be in the household was because of conservative pressure. The conservatives thought it, it would be uh, too much of a giveaway to provide uh, women with, with uh, resources while men were still in the, were still in the house. So they, the women had to prove, they were required to prove that there were no men around. And that had a, that had a negative consequence, an unintended consequence of, of forcing men to, to 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 stay away from from these uh, these these families and so so I, th- I think Marty has a point there was a negative incentive but that w- that was hardly the reason for for this the uh, for this preponderance of female headed families the reason according to most researchers it w- was the, the the disappearance of jobs the disappearance of economic the ability to economically sustain these families by men and the fact that many of them were forced into the underground economy uh, by the by, the the disappearance of the industrial uh, vitality that that drew many African Americans to the to the cities in the first place. But for the first sixty years of the twentieth century, black fathers stayed with their families, and there were there was a, a depression. There were all kinds of economic problems, but black families were basically intact until the government said, "If you break up your family, we'll give you money." And and that's that's not exactly correct. Well, it's uh, uh, pretty damn close I mean, to correct. Many many black remember most black families lived in the south, and and they lived in, in communal they lived in communal neighborhoods that were basically clergy based. That came out of a, a a very deep clergy orientation. When they moved to the north, all of that was sundered. Many of their community uh, connections were were sundered, and and they had to. They had to live in, 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 a, in a completely different environment. So, so, so many of the cultural remnants of, of their of their agrarian past were carried over into the into the urban environment for a few years until that, that broke down. Salim, let me that ask you this question: You, you mentioned you mentioned occurred before the '60s, but but by by the '60s by the '60s, eighty-four percent of Black children were born into intact families. It was only the Great Society that broke that up. It was un- the, the, the destabilization of industrial America that broke that up. Uh, well, right. okay. I want to. I want to. Uh, according Marty, to the data, Marty, now, excuse just, me, gentlemen. Let me. This is what the researchers say. Folks, let me. Let yeah. me. Let me go in and 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 follow up because you you talked about uh, uh, the the religious community. You alluded to it, uh, Salim. Uh, as mm-hmm. you look back at the last forty years, and and as you look at the uh, the epidemic of crime that exists, the the hundreds of hundred over a hundred people shot in Chicago last weekend. We don't know how many are shot this weekend, but it includes a one year old baby. And last year, last week, it was a three year old child. So what we see every night on Chicago television is absolutely it's sickening. But my question right. to you is, Salim. What grade would you give the religious community, which has been an important part of the, the, the black cultural life, what grade would you give them on, on dealing with everything that's been going on for 40 years? Because their messages don't seem to be having any impact at all. Uh, they, they're scream, to, to use a religious metaphor, right, they're screaming in the wilderness. Because um, if people are... are, are, are um, designated to the edge of survival where they they can't be sure of where their resources are going to come from. They live in a predatory environment. Their environments are really dystopian in a lot of ways. They're predatory. um, And and 
you know, people do what they have to do to get over, to, to make it from day to day. And so you can't develop any kind of cultural stability. You can't accumulate cultural capital when you're always on the edge of survival. And that, that's, a, that's because of this, this um, endemic lack of resources, this chronic lack of resources that is really a part of slavery's legacy. And, but and the, pred- think- but the, pred- the predatory activity that you're referring to, is is part of that? Are is it the gangs that that rule uh, many black communities in the United States? Because the people that are home, they are scared to go out of their house. We, this gets back to the original part of our discussion. They may be they may be fearful to call the police, but it, but is it is it much deeper than that? And that that gets in, into well, it, it, my original question it, about whether or not there's a there is a there is a, a black silent majority out there that is going to that's Bruce, crying Bruce, out Bruce, for more law and order. It's much deeper than that, but the, the, the reason it's deeper is because there's it, been a, a black people have been plundered economically throughout our history. It, it's, there, there has been, um, there, there has been, uh, we've been resi- designated to the bottom caste. Are they blaming the for police for that? history in this country? Are they blaming the has, police for that? That accumulate. That a, we we were brought here as as as, as enslaved. Salim, are they blaming? Are they blaming anything on? Are they blaming the police for that, or are they blaming the gangbanger who is who is who is enforcing a black turf gang? What? Why is it that we, we, they're not willing to help the police find people who shoot one year old babies? Are they too fearful there, there of, of dropping now, that, a dime not, on somebody? There are many people who are just as they're more angry than than any than you can possibly I can imagine, imagine because of the shooting of a one year old baby. But the point is, is that we have, as we talked about earlier, the police are placed in a situation, a social situation, a, a choreography that is difficult to break out of because of our history, because of the momentum of our history. And we have to we have to aggressively insert a new paradigm into this thing in order to change it. On that That's moment, we are out we are we out of time. We are out of time. Salim Milwakil, Marty Garrity, thank you for joining us in our number one. Thank you for joining us for many discussions like this in the past. We'll have a lot more in the future. I'm Bruce Dumont. For civilized and stimulating political discussion than beyond the beltway. Bruce, congratulations on 40 years. Here's to many more. Hey, Bruce, Paul Lisnick from WGN-TV. With hearty congratulations on 40 years, an incredible milestone. My thanks for letting me be your fill-in host from time to time, as well as serving on the panel. May you have another 40 years of glorious success on Beyond the Beltway. I'm Ryan Yannitz, retired Army Lieutenant Colonel and Pentagon 9-11 survivor. I've been fortunate to be a guest on Bruce Dumont's Beyond the Beltway several times. I want to wish Bruce and the whole Beyond the Beltway team best of luck and congratulations for a great 40-year run. Happy anniversary, Bruce, from Stephanie Hitt. You have set the ultimate standard for true civilized political debate. Because of Beyond the Beltway, I have made friends and colleagues from across the entire political spectrum. And you know what? That's a gift, not just to me, but to our entire listening audience. Thank you. This is Derek Blakely with a big shout out to Bruce Dumont on the 40th anniversary of Beyond the Beltway, an intelligent civil oasis for political discussion that's needed now more than ever. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career I can be proud of 
and supporting my family. America's veterans are on their most important tour, the tour of their lives. I'm a veteran. My victory was going from homeless to home. At DAV, we're on a mission to help veterans get the benefits they've earned. I'm a veteran, and my victory was finishing my education. DAV offers veterans of all generations a lifetime of support for victories great and small. My victory was proving that a disability is not a limitation. My victory was getting my service dog a new best friend. We help more than a million veterans every year as they face and conquer their challenges. My victory is being able to be there for my family. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Standing up for what's right. Helping out when things go wrong. Seeking the truth and speaking our minds. Not just making records, but breaking them. Leading the way behind the camera, beyond the runway, and on the silver screen. Not just making our mark, but making a difference. Now that's a job for a Girl Scout. Girl Scouts, preparing girls for a lifetime of leadership. Bruce Dumont back on hour number two of Beyond the Beltway. Thank you very much for joining us here on the 28th of June. And again, uh, we are celebrating our 40th anniversary of this program tonight. It began as a public radio show, as an experiment, 13-week experiment for WBEZ Radio in 1980 to cover the uh, presidential nominations that were going on in both the Republican and Democratic Party. And here we are 40 years later, and we're still here. One thing we always had, we always had good, lively guests. We always tried to cover all the bases and make sure that we were fair and balanced, if not on one show, at least collectively, uh, as we present shows to you each and every week. Joining us now are three uh, longtime guests on this program. And uh, first of all, we welcome Rick Garcia. Uh, He joins us from his home in Chicago. He is our liberal Democrat. Uh, Also, we are welcoming uh, uh, Dawn Larson. And she is joining us from her new home in uh, South Dakota. She spent many years in the state of Illinois and was very involved in the Ross Perot boomlet. And also Kenton McCarthy joins us. Uh, He joins us from his home in Arizona. And he uh, was raised in uh, Chicago and has been a card-carrying conservative member, a fiscal conservative, uh, on this program for many, many years. I'd like to begin by asking uh, everybody uh, uh, your reaction to something that's been going on, and that is... uh, the, the tearing down of, uh, of uh, statutes, uh, some have been taken down by cities and municipalities. A lot of them have been torn down by, by mobs. And uh, I want to get to the broader issue, but uh, I want to start with you, uh, 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 Kenton. Uh, what's your take on whether or not uh, statutes as it relates to Civil War heroes whether they should be removed from the public square. I'm not hearing anybody. I'm not hearing Kenton. Are you speaking? I am now. Okay. Well, it's it's always good to have the microphone on, especially if you're doing radio. (laughs) Yeah, I I heard that. Did you hear the question? (laughs) Yeah, I heard the question. What's the answer? Um, I think, I think it's, there, there's two parts to it. It's, it's a cultural revolution at the same time that it's a Marxist revolution. And if you look at Marxist history, and there's always an attempt to clean the slate, to burn the crops and salt the earth and start over. That's why if you look at 
a Mao parade or a Communist China parade, you always see the number 1949. To the Chinese Communist Party, the world began in 1949. Pol Pot created year zero. So if you scrub the history, if you scrub a civilization of its history, you can start fresh much easier. That's why I, I think it, I, th I think it's dangerous. This is this is we're we're getting into uncharted territory when a rental mob is allowed and permitted and allowed to go and destroy the fabric of our society with no debate whatsoever. Okay, oh, let's Lord. go. Let's go to uh, Rick Garcia. I want to get your reaction. You're the you're the liberal progressive on our show this evening. What's your reaction well, to this? And, What's and happening? Bruce, when I first started to do your show. I was an independent yes, and now a long time ago. I'm a liberal Democrat, but let me tell you this. <laughs> when you said you don't disagree with that title, do you? No, I do not okay. today. I do not. Okay. That was a very accurate title. Okay. But let me tell you this. You said uh, civil rights here. I mean, uh, heroes. They were not heroes. They were traitors. Those statues okay. were of the Confederacy, the mm -hmm. Confederacy that was against the Union. They lost. And those statues were not put up during the Confederacy. They were not put up right after it. They were put up in the 20th, mostly 20th century, to tell colored people watch yourself okay because the south will rise again so this this is why are we raising up and honoring traitors okay. to this nation all right i want to get reaction from uh, dawn and then i want to follow up uh, with some of these points dawn larson you're from uh, out there in, in south dakota you're a reform type uh, how do you feel about uh, uh, those who are engaged in the public uh, square right now that are just saying there are things in this public square we don't want? We want to change it. Well, I, I really have to go back in history to a time when you started your radio show and I was a young housewife. I was one of those nasty Reagan Democrats. I gave up on the Democrat Party because I felt they gave up on me, and that has not changed. Mm -hmm. I'm shocked and discouraged that not one Democrat I know has stood up and condemned the violence. I have no problem if communities want to come together and take a reasonable vote and decide what to do with their own statuary. But to be threatening the public and removing things and tearing down things like George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, my gosh, like it or not, this was a civil war. Honey, this was America. I didn't interrupt down. you. I'd rather you didn't interrupt me. To, to tear down things that belong to the entire country, Republican, Democrat, independent, black, white, it doesn't matter. This is American history. We teach our children what not to do by showing them what happened. And I'm appalled at the violence. It's dangerous. You can roll your eyes at me, but you're I am wrong. rolling my eyes at you. Okay, well, no, let's, go, let's, go, let's that, go back back to Rick, and then we're going to go to right. uh, Rick. 
Kenton, go no ahead. one's suggesting that George Washington or Abraham Lincoln should have their statues taken down. Yes, that is they so are. Cool. Some people yes, are. Yes, they are. Your candidate for president has not. <laughs> well, a, a sister woman. You don't know who my candidate is, okay? Your party. So stop right there. I apologize. The Democrat candidate has not condemned the violence. No elected member of Congress has condemned the violence. And might I point out that every single member of the Confederacy started out as a Democrat, and people forget their history. If we tear down those statues, nobody will know. Those statues are there to to educate the public. No, those statues statues are there. And this is really well known. Those statues are there to intimidate African-Americans and to tell them that they are to stay in their place. That is what those statues are about. And you you know what? You may not like it. Now, would you you acknowledge that? Would you acknowledge that? Secondly, They are traitors. So you think we should have statues honoring traitors of our country? Well, let me ask. Rick, let me uh, let me finish. Let me let me finish and jump in. One second, folks. One second. We got a we got a barn burner of a discussion here. But Rick, let me go back to you. Okay. Yes. I agree with you that uh, they should not be rewarded because they were traitors. And my question to you is, because you were right, these things did not go up right after the Civil War. They went up uh, in, in, in the 50s and 60s. And again, uh, the, the, the reason that you state that they were put up, I don't know whether that's true or not, but there may be some truth to it. But would you acknowledge that the people that put those up, they were all Democrats? They were all Democrats at the local level. They were Democrats at the national level. All of those military bases that were named for uh, traitors, as you've called them, they were all named under Democratic administrations. Back shortly from Chicago. Hi, this is Chicago Alderman Raymond Lopez, just congratulating my friend Bruce Dumont on 40 years of Beyond the Beltway. Truly an American institution. Congratulations, my friend. I'm Marty Garrity. Congratulations to Bruce Dumont on 40 years of hosting one of the most interesting political shows on the radio. I've been privileged to be part of that for 35 of those 40 years, and I look forward to being involved for the next 35 years. Hi, my name is David Masiotra. I started watching Beyond the Beltway as a high school student, and now I'm a proud panelist. Congratulations, Bruce, on 40 years of broadcast success and intelligent political debate. Here's to many more. Bruce Dumont back. Thanks to have you with us this evening. And let's go to Kenton McCarthy. And Kenton, I want to sort of broaden the discussion with you because you're from Arizona and the president visited Arizona last week. Arizona is one of those states that has seen a bump in coronavirus cases. And give us your report from the... Go ahead. What's your reaction to uh, how people are reacting to it out there? Well, we it it's it's tough because we've seen a dramatic spike. We have hospitals that are nudging upwards to capacity constraints, uh, which is a big concern. The good news is the mortality rate is falling. Bad news is younger people are getting it, but it's noticeably less severe. 
So more people are surviving it, but our caseload is really concerning. And you've got uh, Senator Cinema, who is hell-bent on locking us down again. She spends her day beating up on Doug Ducey to force us. We'll probably get a bars the and governor, restaurants yeah. closing again probably well, tomorrow, I'm guessing, people are, because are, with Florida are, and Texas doing yeah. that. Go ahead. Are people in Arizona, uh, the people that you deal with on a regular basis, are they um, – are they frustrated? Are they blaming both sides? Are they, uh, are they, are they realizing that we're going to have to live with this or die with this, and yet we can't close Arizona again? How are they reacting to it in a in a very practical way? They're they're frustrated. They're concerned. I don't think anyone's eager for another lockdown. We lost six hundred fifty thousand jobs in April. And those of those jobs, most of those were the most economically vulnerable. Um, so it's, it's taken a big toll. Ducey has promised not to lock us down again. It's going to be hard for him politically. Here, here's what you have to remember. Everything, whether it's BLM, Antifa, or COVID, everything hinges on November 3rd. That's always in play. Any discussion you have, any strategy you deploy, it all hinges on November 3rd. We've got uh, the Senate race. The, the Democrats will probably flip the seat here and flip it handily. That's why you had Trump come down and do his rally. I think that was that was an effort to not just prop him up, but prop McSally up as best he could. Mm-hmm. But it's a it's a problem with our caseload and our and our healthcare system under strain. It's going to be real difficult to continue to open up okay. expansively. Don Larson, to you, uh, you're in South Dakota. How do those who live in South Dakota? How do they view COVID nineteen and some of the devastation that's taking place in other states around the nation, uh, and not so much in South Dakota? Well, I think one thing to know is that in our state, the hotspot we had was due to the meat processing, processing plant over in Sioux Falls, which is on the border between Minnesota and South Dakota. Uh-huh. Um, over 3,000 cases of our 4,000 cases are there. Um, most of the deaths were there. I mean, for most of our state, this has not been a problem until now. The reason it's a problem now is that it's tourist season. Our income in this state relies on tourists. We have to have tourists. People come here from all over the world to go to Mount Rushmore, to go to the Badlands, to whatever it is. So we're all very, very cautious right now. We were never in lockdown. We didn't need to be. We're all responsible here. Most people in my state live in and practice social distancing. Mm -hmm. They're miles away from their neighbors. Okay. It's a very rural state. Um, But like I say, it's about, we're looking at tourism, but at the same time, we're also shocked and appalled at the absolute tyranny that some of these governors are, are engaged in. Why would you force people not to go to church and yet allow people to go to the liquor store or to, 
any one of a number of other things. They can protest in the street shoulder to shoulder without masks in Detroit, but they can't go to church. I want to follow, fo- follow up on that in a moment, but I want to go to Rick. Uh, Rick, uh, on the subject of uh, coronavirus, uh, one of the industries hit hardest has been the hospitality industry and specifically the restaurant industry. Those industries, they employ a lot of gay and lesbian uh, employers, employees. What has been the reaction in, in your sphere of influence uh, in Chicago's uh, gay and lesbian community uh, to the way this has been handled at the local level by the mayor, who is uh, African-American and, and a, and a uh, lesbian, or, uh, or, or even at the state level? Are they, view, are they viewing it positively or are they getting as frustrated as everybody else because they can't open their, their bars and restaurants? No, I think, let me tell you this. Let's, let's look at the map and let's look where the infections are and what is happening. The great state of Illinois had yesterday, I think, 300 new COVID cases. All right. Because our mayor and our governor have been hard-assed about making sure that people social distance, wear masks, close things down. Let's look at Florida yesterday. 8,000 new COVID cases because they wanted to open up. And I will tell you this. But what about have, what about the bars have, and what, but Rick, what about the bars and le, uh, bars and restaurants in the Chicagoland area because they have not been singing the praises of the mayor or the governor because they, well, they wanted have. to open. I mean, the gay bars and the gay uh, the gay bar owners that I know have been really hesitant even to open up now, and because what is more important, people's lives or having your business open. And I'm very proud of the lesbian and gay owners of restaurants and bars who have said, let's let's do it responsibly. Let's make sure everybody is protected because human life is more important than anything. And we see. But let, let, do you, do you, do you, I want well, to I, I go back to. I want to go to Kenton because I want to. I want to see. I want to see whether he agrees with that, or does he think that there has to be a happy medium where there's some. We have to. We have to have a, a risk of death because we also need to, to pay the the rent the next month. Kenton. Well, here, here, here's the thing. First of all, it's it's often lost that economic activity generates the revenue and the wealth to take care of six people. So you you can't just close down an economy and expect revenue to be there or the Federal Reserve to print enough money to take care of people. There has to be activity. Uh, an old Chinese proverb says life is balance. There's got to be a balance somehow. We're still in this binary situation where you have to make one choice versus the other. This virus doesn't, Mother Nature doesn't give us the menu options that our current vanity thinks we are due. We don't have, we are going to lose people regardless of what we do. Uh, so if you have an approach that is reasoned and is responsible, you can have economic activity and you can have 
constraints and you can have health directives that seek to minimize the damage. Don, a question to you. You, you, uh, when I introduced you, I said you were, uh, you and I met when the Ross Perot movement was just getting started and you were one of the most active members in, in the state of Illinois. And, uh, and you were just, you, you were, you were a hundred percent in for Ross Perot. And we went through that a year of in 1992, the rise and fall of Ross Perot. He's in, he's out. (laughs) And again, uh, you and I had, we, we did, you were a virtual guest every single uh, week on this program. And it's one of the things we've done over the years is when the, when there's a movement out there, whether it's the reform party or Ross Perot or Donald Trump, when something is going on in the body politic, we pick up on it and we, and we discover it and we give a lot of exposure to it. So my question at this, so you, you sort of understand when there's something going on in the, in the, in the political waters out there, as you Hi. sit, as you sit in South Dakota, which I would say probably is going to be a safe state for Donald Trump. How do you see his reelection uh, chances? Are you positive? Are you feeling something that there's out there that's going to send him back for another four years? Or are you worried? I'm not worried at all, and I'll tell you why. First of all, this isn't 1992. We're not running around with index cards and huge, gigantic cell phones and no computers. This is a very digital age. We have laptops and computers and devices and all kinds of social media. And that's where I live now. I'm not out knocking on doors anymore. I'm on social media, and I'm on it a lot. And what I'm seeing is that the states that he won last time I don't care what the polls say, they measure popular vote, but the states he won last time, I've not seen in any case where Biden legitimately is going to flip that state. Number one, states like mine, they don't even have an office here for the Democrat Party. They're certainly not going to have an office here for Biden. And the same is true in other Democrat states. I'm hearing a lot from the younger, disgruntled Democrats who are very much where I was in 1980. These are people that did not vote for Donald Trump in 19 or in 2016. These are people that were so ticked off that the Democrats cheated Bernie Sanders that they did not vote. Well, guess what? They're not voting for Biden. He's part of the same Democrat establishment. So suddenly now, because of Mr. Trump's positions on things like trade, which by the way, are very similar to Ross Perot, um, on manufacturing, on jobs, on getting people back to work on his crime bill, that was presented in the Senate and defeated by Democrats on his work for justice reform. He's the first president to do it. We had a Democrat. Don, we've got a we've got a pause. We've got a pause. We're going. We're go, we got a pause. We're going to a break. When we come back, we're going to hear from Rick Garcia, who's going to comment on what you just said. That's right. Hi, this is Dave Cohn, and I'd like to congratulate Bruce Dumont and Beyond the Beltway for four decades of outstanding programming. I've been so honored to be a panelist on your show, Bruce, and we look forward to many, many more years of outstanding conversations with you about the views and opinions that exist outside the Beltway. Congratulations. Hi, this is Doug Herman from Los Angeles. Hey, Bruce, congratulations on 40 years. It's a big milestone and something that couldn't have happened if you weren't providing a lively show with balance and bringing people something beyond the Beltway. 40 years. Congratulations. Jeannie Ives here. Congratulations to Bruce Dumont and Beyond the Beltway for 40 years of providing excellent news coast to coast for your listeners. I've really enjoyed working with you, Bruce. You're terrific. 
Bruce Dumont back on Beyond the Beltway. Thanks very much for joining us tonight. Uh, we have not spent uh, too much time during the, the body of the program talking about the 40th anniversary of the show. We may spend a couple more minutes on it before we go off the air. But I do want to call to your attention that if you go to our website, which is beyondthebeltway.com, beyondthebeltway.com, uh, there will be a whole gallery of pictures uh, over the last 40 years. Uh, also, we're going to you'll be able to hear the very first show, some anniversary shows, some the show we did after September 11th, uh, some memorable shows uh, from the archives of Beyond the Beltway, and also a lot of gallery pictures, including some of the guests who, who are with us this evening. So again, uh, keep that in mind, beyondthebeltway.com. And our guests right now, we're going to let them introduce themselves. And let us begin with Rick Garcia. Rick, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what you do and uh, how you became involved with this program many, many years ago. Well, well Bruce, I'm so glad you asked that. Uh, I have been a gay civil rights activist for more than 40 years. But one of the things that I remember is when I was still a kid, I did Beyond the Beltway. And <laughs> over the years, I have done it. And I always appreciated how you brought diverse people with divergent views together for respectful conversation. Not like everybody screaming at each other, even though I think I've screamed at some people. But uh, <laughs> and, and you know what? In the 40 years, in the 40 years of gay activism, beyond the beltway, discussed every major issue and was there for every major issue that faced the LGBTQ community. For instance, I remember in, uh, I can't remember the year, I'm, I'm horrible about years, but the first state that legislatively allowed same-sex marriage, you had a show in Boston. Yes. That, that was Jesus. And, and that was and that was and that was one of the, that was one of the memorable shows because we were there it was on the eve of the first yes. gay marriage in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Exactly. And after that and after that program I went with the uh, the uh, the engineer of the show from WRKO radio. Uh, he was going out to just to check it out. So I said, "Do you mind if I tag along?" We went out to Cambridge, Massachusetts. There were tens of thousands of people in the street standing outside the courthouse waiting for the first marriages, gay marriages in the United States uh, to be issued by the clerk there. And in the in the midst of, of this huge crowd of tens of thousands of people, uh, I see Rick Garcia and I also see uh, uh, Art Johnson, who is uh, one of the uh, leading activists in the gay rights movement. Uh, out of all these people, I run into you right there. Memorable and I, I I have been looking for the picture of us. And and but my <laughs> one of my most favorite me memories is the 25th anniversary of the Stonewall riots. You called me and said, "Can you be on the show?" And I said, "Bruce, I can't because I'm in New York City for the big National March for Gay uh -huh. Rights." Right. And you said, "Well, can you call me?" This is before cell phones. Right. <laughs> and I did it from a payphone 
in wow. front of the Stonewall Inn. You Remember must have that? You must and have Chris had, Kelly. You must have had, you must have had a lot of, lot of quarters. We want to move on. I want to go. Don yeah. Larson, tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and uh, what you're up to now and uh, how we met. Well, I think I told everybody how we met, but go ahead. Yeah, we met during the Perot years. I think I was on the show the last time in 1998. It was a pretty regular fixture from 92 till then. Yes. Um. My basic background, I, I started to say earlier, I'm a, one of the nasty Repo Reagan Democrats and really have never bonded with any political party, primarily because of the extremes in both parties. I don't think that we can save our country and do the things we need to do through a political party. I think it's going to happen with the broadest possible coalition of the middle. I think one time Someone called us as the pro-movement, the radical middle. And I think in a very real way, because we morphed into things like the Tea Party and the pro-movement became the Trump movement. I think what we are is that radical middle. There's 20% on the, in, on the left. There's 20% on the right, far right, far left, and we're the rest of the country. And I think that's what's going to be the future. I think in the end, and I think 2020 is going to be another bellwether. Our president did, was not a born Republican. He ran as a Republican. But I, I think that he is the bellwether. He's the person who's going to change the country more than he already has. Okay. What other president could have, have weathered this storm? So that's who I am now. I okay. like to say I spend most of my time on social media. I still repair computers for a living. And he's heading, right and he, and he's heading to your, uh, he's going to head to uh, South Dakota for uh, the Mount Rushmore celebration on the 4th of July. He is. He'll be here on Friday. And so Very a good. lot of people. I want to switch over to Kenton McCarthy. And Kenton, uh, we probably have known each other longer than anybody that's ever been on this program. Yeah. You were I remember. A I, I, or I grew you were up less in, than a teenager. I grew up <laughs> I grew up in suburban Chicago and I was steeped in politics, but I, I came from the, the traditional mainstream conservative Wall Street Journal op-ed page, National Review, uh, Cato, Heritage, and so on, um, all four of which I, I loathe today. But I was, it was <laughs> in 1992, I was minding my own business at work and I got a call from one of your producers. And he said, Bruce is looking for a young, urban, sophisticated conservative to be on the show. Right. And I said, well, if, if you ditch the sophisticated part, I may be able to help. <laughs> so I called him back and I said, well, who else is going to be on the show? He said, uh, you know, Peter Heisinger, uh, Coretta McFerrin and Jesse Jackson. So I thought, I heard Jesse Jackson's name and I thought, well, this is going to be interesting. I'm going to have my first and last radio show in one evening because I'll get, I'll get my, you know, what handed to me. And through that, the best thing, it was a lively debate. Apparently I held my own because you did. it's 28 years later and I'm here and he isn't. Right. Okay. Well, but, 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 but well, he's, he's just not here tonight. That's all. But again, know, you be, uh, you, but you became, uh, you became an acquaintance to Jesse Jackson. Did you not? Didn't yeah, you? I like okay. him. And you know, who, yeah. you know, who actually I like even more who is two of the, two of the most profound, 
uh, gentlemen I've met on your show. One was Celine Muakil. Yes. Yes. And the other is Jesse Jackson Jr. Right. I have I have nothing but respect for Jesse Jackson Jr. And it it saddened me to hear his political career collapse the way it did. Right. I like the guy. I love Salim. I think he's a great guy. I would debate with him all night long. Good. But the best thing that the best thing that came from Beyond the Beltway was when it led to teaching at Malcolm X. It was then Malcolm X College teaching a continuing ed course on business to inner uh-huh. city youths. That still to me is the highlight of these 28 years. Yeah. Well, that, that is, uh, that's great. And again, uh, uh, you alluded to two things and the, and again, they will be uh, on next week. We have two guests. I'm not going to tell you who they are, but we have two guests on next week who are frequent guests on this program. Now they first heard this program when they were in high school when they were in high school. They're on different sides politically now. They'll be with us uh, next week. Uh, Let's go to some calls. We've been keeping them off the air. Let's go to Dave listening to us in Spokane, Washington on KXLY. Go ahead, Spokane. Well, hey, Bruce. Uh, This isn't my original call comment, but I heard you talking about COVID-19. I just want to throw a quick thing out there. When when you're talking about the data going the wrong direction, that's actually incorrect. If the cases were going up, but also the average age of those cases was going up, that would be bad. Cases going up and average age going down is exactly what we want to see because it's statistically and scientifically fact that the youngest among us are the least susceptible to having severe reactions. There's the ones and twos, but they are the least susceptible. So this is actually a good thing to building herd immunity. Anyway, uh, I just wanted to say that this overreaction society is driving me a little crazy. Uh, we have a police, you know, the policeman uses excessive force that turns into riots about racism. We have statues coming down because people can't control their emotions. And kind of like your liberal guest there that gets extremely emotional and calls out your other guest, hey, woman, um, it's just a little bit of an of a overreaction society. Uh, I'd like to see people look at yep. these statues and monuments and consider them holistically, and if you don't like certain aspects of them, discuss it and talk about what you don't like. I mean, when you see Roosevelt, and you see, or Theodore Roosevelt, and you see Abraham Lincoln, and people are trying to call these white supremacist and racist statues because they are elevated above the other men in the, in the statue with them, well, guess what? It's because they were the president of the United States, and right. presidents are elevated in stature above everyday average people, generally because of their stature and right. their, their position. That's what happens. Yeah. Well, it's also it's also a lack of, of 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 education and awareness. And I will say that there's there's a lack of education about American history on all sides. You're right. The people that are out there are tearing down statues. They don't know the history. And yet there's a lot of people. And we've talked, you know, when we were talking, you know, June, Juneteenth, a couple of weeks ago, there's a lot of, uh, you know, white Americans that don't know anything about uh, African-American history or about Juneteenth and about those things. So I do believe that this this need for uh, education of American history, black and white, uh, that is what we need. And, and again, if there's going to be a debate over whether a statute is going to be taken down, let there be a public debate amongst that municipality. Let them vote, but let them learn about the history. So, so this, hopefully this can be, hopefully this can turn into a teaching moment that uh, that both sides will be edified for uh, and by uh, when, it, when it happens. We do have to pause. Thank you very much for your call. 1-800-723-8029. More calls and our guests when we roll on from Evanston, Illinois.
Hey Bruce, it is Josh Cantro greeting you from Central Oregon where I'm on a hiking trip. I just wanted to thank you for all you do to present balanced viewpoints every week over the past 40 years. I'm a big fan of your show and I've been fortunate to be a regular guest the past three years for which I thank you as well. To another 40 years, Bruce, thank you. Hello, Bruce. Kenny Romeyer with News Radio KLBJ in Austin, Texas. Congratulations on 40 years with Beyond the Beltway, another milestone in your distinguished broadcasting career. And thanks for the quality civil discourse on Sunday nights. From all of us here at KLBJ, we wish you continued success. This is Mike Lotus. I want to congratulate Bruce Dumont on 40 years of Beyond the Beltway and wish him many more years of his wonderful show discussing the great political issues of the day. Bruce Dumont back, and let's go to David listening to us in San Francisco. Go ahead, David. Oh, how are you, Bruce? Uh, hey, uh, congratulations on 40 years. Thank you, sir. Uh, 40 years ago, yeah, 40 years ago, I lived in St. Louis, uh-huh. and we could... You were probably on WLS, if I remember right, right? No, no, I was on WLS for 22 years, but that was uh, from 1992 forward. Before that, I was on uh, WBEZ, and then I was also on uh, several syndicated stations all over the country on mostly public radio stations. Okay, I was but you remember the to show. remember, uh, you know, well, sure, I mean, 40 years ago, I was trying to think if we heard it faintly after the after dark when some of those clear channel stations. It's very possible. Uh, I I have been heard faintly on many stations. (laughs) There you go. Hey, well, what I was looking at, you know, in America, uh, it's we, the people own the country, Uh right? The president is our employee. And he, if he runs into a disaster, like uh, an epidemic, we want that guy to be a symphony conductor. Mm -hmm. We want him to carefully, cleverly make sure that an epidemic dies down, the least amount of people are killed or injured, uh, the least amount of distress. Mm -hmm. Well, there's obviously they're playing politics with the rescue supplies. You see Florida with their drinking laws. I mean, can you imagine Florida has, has basically gone dry? Uh, you know, they've turned off the the liquor in Florida just to make sure there's no drunks during an epidemic, which is totally smart, but they're going to have a whole bunch of people in, uh, what do they call it, Uh, you know, when they're coming down from uh, a uh, hooked on alcohol. I mean, you know, this is a a horrible situation. Well, again, but but, but again, what what happens here is you are correct that that we would hope that we would have a leader during uh, this period. And and we do, and and some people like the leader, and some people don't like the leader. Uh, well, I do it's our think property. I do. That's yes, where I'm that's going. good. However, there is personal responsibility, and just because the governor of a state says, "Okay, we're going to open things up," because he understands that the state has to get the economic uh, engine uh, revved up again, that doesn't mean that people can can be lax or they can go out without a mask on. I mean, this this debate over a mask. 
I, I really, I just don't get it. Yeah. It's such a, it's such yeah, a it's simple yeah, thing. Out here in San Francisco, yeah. it's a fashion statement yeah. out here. Yeah. And actually, I'm trying to. I think Trump just appointed his 200th judge. I'd like to commission 200 fa- different face mask designs. Impeach this judge. Impeach that judge. <laughs> you know, this is, uh, you know, their fashion statement. And you can you know, cut. What is it like? Seventy percent of the uh, uh, epidemic's power is cut. We one side of a mask, then the second mask is another 70%. So you're actually, your chances of catching it are very slim if you both be smart about it and everybody settles down. That's what what people have to do. They've got to be smart about it. We're going to move on. Thanks for your call. I know you're a regular listener. And uh, let's go to Mike in Spokane, Washington. Also, I recognize that name from Spokane. Mike, is this uh, the gentleman that's been listening to this show for maybe 20 years? I am, sir. Congratulations on 40 years of Beyond the Beltway. Bruce. Thank you. Sometimes I used to call from the payphone. <laughs> well, that's okay. Well, you know, Spokane, Spokane is a is an, a good example. Spokane is one of the early shows that w- where we did a remote. And we did a remote because we received a call one night that told us the Speaker of the House, Tom Foley, a Democrat, was in trouble for his reelection in Spokane. And we went to Spokane. We did the show live from KXLY, which still carries this program. And by golly, Tim uh, Tom Foley, he got beat. And uh, uh, we had that story first because of a caller to this program. But what are, yeah. you, what are you calling for tonight? Well, you might want to come out and visit this summer, too, Coeur d'Alene Lake, Priest Lake. Uh, but I'm beautiful. calling about you know, racism is wrong, morally wrong. Yet, you know, today we see the protesters, Bruce, tearing down statues and occupying cities, Seattle. Statue of Juniper Sahara was destroyed in San Francisco. He was a Franciscan priest who founded the early Franciscan missions. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these protesters want to tear down and occupy cities and destroy, but there's there's no there's nothing behind it. It's anarchy, complete anarchy. Their form of government is anarchy. And where's Joe Biden in all this? Well, Joe Biden has said that he he disagrees with uh, the defunding of police. And I want to ask uh, Rick Garcia, who's our card carrying Democrat this evening, and to pick up on something that that Don Larson said a segment or two ago, and that is she talked about the lack of enthusiasm amongst Democrats. Uh, regarding uh, Joe Biden, and I'm wondering if uh, you would uh, agree that that's uh, that enthusiasm may be a problem for the Democratic nominee, Rick. I don't think so. I think there's more enthusiasm for Joe Biden than there was for Hillary Clinton, and I also see there is an enthusiasm from independents and moderate Republicans for Joe Biden. And so I'm very comfortable about this because, you know, the president has failed on so many levels. And I think people of goodwill and people with common sense are understanding that and they're getting behind Joe Biden. Uh, Kenton McCarthy, would you agree with something that, that Rick said, and I need a 10 second answer, that uh, a lot of people hated Hillary Clinton and and Donald Trump used that to get elected. There may not be a lot of people who hate Joe Biden. I need a quick answer. Yes Correct. or no? Correct. Uh, Donald Trump is running it against himself. And if he doesn't turn it around, he's going to self-destruct. 
and elect Joe Biden for him. Okay, bingo. Kendon McCarthy, we thank you very much for joining us from Arizona. Don Larson, thank you very much for joining us uh, from South Dakota. Rick Garcia, thank you for joining us from the fashionable near north side of Chicago. Our thanks to <laughs> Andrew Marshall for his assistance in the production of this program, along with Fritz Goldman, who's been with this program for a long, long time. Also, Todd Neville, uh, we thank him as well. I'm Bruce Dumont. Good night until next week from Evanston, Illinois.